You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Democracy is a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a miracle. This idea that we will all agree to be able to govern ourselves. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The materials you need to build a wildfire-resistant home, are they're all here. They're on the shelf at your local, your local hardware store. What do I do if someone pulls off my headscarf? But what do I do as someone who has privilege when I see one of my neighbors or, or friends being attacked? This is KCBS In-Depth. In just a few short days, we're going to reach the close of another decade. And here with the Bay Area, an awful lot has happened over the course of that decade, from athletic triumphs... The long drought is over for San Francisco Giants... Two political protests. Five or six hundred people gathered here and they soon took to the streets where they were stopped by officers in riot gear. Two political shakeups. I, London, and breathe. I, London, and breathe. You solemnly swear. Two major disasters. The permitted use of that building was as a warehouse. The devastation that I have seen, I, I've never seen anything like it before. So, after a whole decade of nonstop Bay Area news, the question is what's still worth remembering? I'm Keith Benconi. This is KCBS In-Depth, and today on the program, we're going to look back at some of the biggest Bay Area news stories from the past 10 years to find out what they may have to teach us about the next 10. We've got three stories to take on and three KCBS reporters to bring them to us. Now, obviously, we're barely scratching the surface on this decade, but if we do our job right, these reflections will leave us all just a little bit more prepared for the news that's coming our way in the decade ahead. First up, we're going to start off our decade review with a major Bay Area sports victory, the Giants' 2010 World Series win over the Texas Rangers. What a thrilling moment this is for for all of the Bay Area. The Giants are And the Giants did do it again, twice actually, but they weren't the only Bay Area team that had a good decade. To talk more about what shaped up to be a remarkable decade in Bay Area sports, we're going to bring on to the program now KCBS reporter Doug Sovereign. So Doug, that 2010 victory, remind us why it meant so much to Giants fans. Well, it was the first time the Giants had finally won a World Series on the West Coast after 52 years of being uh, in the Bay Area and coming close, but not quite getting there a couple of times, several times. They finally broke through and won. And then, of course, they did it again two years later and again two years after that. So three championships in six years after having none for five decades. All right. So a good decade for the Giants. But as we mentioned, a good decade also for other Bay Area teams as well. Well, the Warriors closed the decade with a dynasty, right, as they won three championships in the NBA, something they, of course, had never come close to before. The 49ers are good again. The A's are good again. It was a remarkable decade all the way around, I guess, if you leave out the Oakland Raiders. So a lot of winning all around. Definitely a good decade for the teams. A little bit of heartbreak in the mix, though, for a lot of fans as many of these teams picked up shop and moved to new cities. Well, first we had the 49ers moving out of San Francisco to Santa Clara. Then we had the Warriors moving from Oakland to San Francisco. Now we have the Raiders on their way out the door going to Las Vegas. So, yes, Oakland has lost two of its three major league teams. There's really been a lot of upheaval in the Bay Area sports marketplace 
Only the A's remained in Oakland, and you know, luckily for San Francisco, they brought the Warriors in. Otherwise, they would be down to just the Giants. So things have really changed a lot over the last decade in the Bay Area sports scene, despite all the victories that the teams have had. All right, so a decade of major wins, but also, as you say, a decade of major changes. For a little bit more perspective on where those changes might lead in the decade ahead, you did a couple of interviews. Tell us about the interviews that you did. Well, we spoke with Roger Knoll, who's a Stanford professor emeritus of economics. He's a specialist in the business of sport, and also with our KCBS afternoon sports anchor, Kevin Radich, not just about the success of the last 10 years and the changes, but what we could expect over the next decade. And I started by asking Professor Knoll, what was the biggest development of those last 10 years in terms of the impact it might have on the next 10? Well, the single most important fact that's going on is the huge increase in the demand for professional sports and uh, in, the, in the ticket prices, in the broadcasting revenues, in the salaries of the players. And that's all driven by the, the rapid growth of high-income people. And, and it's especially true in the Bay Area that, these, that sports franchises in the Bay Area, if they are located near the main sources of economic growth, are basically gold mines. And that, that sort of, you know, but the place to locate, unfortunately, isn't, local, isn't Oakland. It's uh, either the Silicon Valley or the city of San Francisco. Obviously, this drives up the value of these franchises. But what does that mean for the local ticket buyer, for the everyday fan? Uh, are a lot of people going to be priced out in the years to come? Well, uh, the, the number of people at the games is driven by the capacity of the facilities because all the teams we're talking about sell out every game, essentially, except for the A's. The uh, uh, so the, what's happening, of course, is the ticket prices are being driven up by the growth in the high income people. So you're right. This the 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 sort of middle income and below person uh, is increasingly in the position they can't afford to go to games, and it's made worse by the fact that most of the tickets are sold on a season ticket basis, so that it's get, gaining access by ordinary people is doubly difficult. Which leads me to my next question. Although I'll also point out, you know, Las Vegas has sort of a unique position in that they can put on a hotel tax on all their visitors and pay for it that way as opposed to taking it out of their local pockets, I suppose. But but the A's, um, Oakland obviously has been burned by the Raiders and is not going to put up money to help the A's beyond infrastructure, which could be quite expensive. How important is it for Oakland to keep the last of its three major league teams? Well, economically, it's not important at all because it's, it's, it doesn't generate any additional economic development. I think the main issue from Oakland's point of view is simply as an amenity in the city, as something you know, uh, for, for the people who live there. The issue is, is it worth them to pay a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, to retain the Oakland name on a team? Uh, but certainly that's the way to think about the issue is, is, is it's like having a city park. It's not like having a major new firm open up and, uh, you know, like having Tesla build a battery factory in your city. It's not the same thing. It doesn't provide that kind of economic juice. Thank you, Roger Knoll, Stanford professor, as we talk the economics of Bay Area sports. Now let's bring in our KCBS afternoon sports anchor, Kevin Radich. As I mentioned at the outset, this has been a remarkable decade for Bay Area teams, Kevin. I think it's the best decade in the history of pro sports here in the Bay Area bar far. If you look back in the 70s, you had five championships. One, uh, you had three in a row by the Oakland A's. You had the Oakland Raiders getting over the hump in 1976. And then you had the Warriors in 75. But here in this decade, 
We've had three Warrior titles and three Giants titles. The Sharks have been to the playoffs virtually every year. They went to the Stanley Cup Finals before losing to Pittsburgh. And it's been completely dominant. Now the 49ers are emerging this year. But don't forget, at the beginning... They were in a Super Bowl. Yeah, they went to three straight NFC Championship games. So now, after this incredible success, we're in a little bit of a lull. The Niners have gotten good again. The A's seem about to. As we look ahead to the next decade, will there be a dynasty in the Bay Area in the next 10 years? Or will we see consistent success? And what teams do you think are most likely to win titles here over the next decade? I think the Oakland A's may be poised above all else. Uh, You're going to see the Warriors struggle. There's no question about it. Because... Uh, they're now in a hard cap situation. It's very difficult to get back to where they were unless they trade multiple pieces and have great success in the lottery. And that's always a crapshoot. So I don't, I don't think that they're going to rise up to the level that we've seen them at or anything close to it. The Oakland A's, however, are young. They're dynamic. Uh, if they get that new stadium in place down the road. But right now, they're poised to win. They, they need to get over the hump in the playoffs. They have the best shot, I think, to, to bring a championship to the Bay Area. And the 49ers, of course, are getting close. The Giants are in a rebuilding phase, and the Sharks are up and down. But we'll see how it goes over the next 10 years. Thank you, Kevin Radich. And I'm Doug Sovereign, KCBS. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. This week, we're taking a long, hard look at some of the biggest stories of the past decade as we look forward to what the new decade may bring. Up next, well, the past 10 years have seen a major tech boom, but by the middle of the decade, we also saw a major tech backlash. And that brings us to our second story, the so-called tech bus protests. They were a series of demonstrations beginning in 2013 against corporate shuttles for tech employees commuting from San Francisco to Silicon Valley corporate campuses. For that story, we're joined now by KCBS reporter Matt Bigler. So, Matt, remind us how these shuttle buses came to be so controversial. Well, they are big buses. (laughs) They're easy targets to vent a lot of, quite frankly, rage about the fact that rents have gone up so dramatically that it's so hard to live in the Bay Area, that affordability has gotten almost impossible for a lot of people. And those were the symbol of the biggest industry in the Bay Area. And people decided to single those out and create some pretty creative demonstrations around them, and it caught a lot of attention. And so as we mentioned, these protests started in 2013, really kicked into high gear in the mid part of the decade. But we've seen echoes of this more recently than that. Even as recently as 2018, you covered one of these protests in San Jose. That was the only, as far as I know, tech bus protest in San Jose. What demonstrators did is they dressed up in hazmat suits, surrounded a Google bus as it was driving by San Jose State, and stopped it. They managed to stop it right there in the street. And their message was, Google is toxic for San Jose. Google is not going to solve the housing crisis. um, And... Google is not going to create homes for residents like me who have uh, grown up in San Jose and and live in San Jose and love San Jose. They don't want Google to build a massive campus for about 25,000 workers in the downtown area. And to send that message, they decided to stop that bus. All this perhaps signs of the shifting attitudes towards tech? Right. There was no longer an attitude that tech brings prosperity. I think these protesters were trying to send a message that there are a lot of negative side effects of tech. 
And even in San Jose, where there's a lot more room in San Francisco, uh, there was concern that if you continue to have tech companies expand, there's going to be a big impact. People who've lived there for a long time won't be able to afford the cost of living. And uh, maybe we should rethink this before allowing Google to build. All right. So many of those questions still left unanswered as we're beginning into the new decade. You wanted to get some perspective on where this is all headed. Tell me a little bit about what you found. Right. We wanted to go a little bit deeper on this. We talked to Richard Walker. He's professor emeritus of economic geography at UC Berkeley. He wrote a book with a pretty eye-catching title. Yes, it was called uh, Pictures of a Gone City, Tech and the Dark Side of Prosperity in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that should tip you off here. He's something of a tech skeptic. Now, looking back to how this decade has shaped up, he reminds us that while tech has been around for a long time in the Bay Area, about 50 years, this current tech wave that we're really riding on got going in the aftermath of the Great Recession. In the 2010s, we came out of the Great Recession faster than anyone else in the world, uh, and our economy grew by well over half the GDP of the region, and uh, that brought incredible pressure. Money poured in here, and this became the richest place on Earth. So uh, when you have unemployment growth of perhaps a million people, uh, well over a quarter, maybe a third of the workforce in growth, and that has this massive impact uh, that just uh, turns a city upside down. And the result of that is a vast growth of inequality uh, and the Bay Area being, and the tech sector, being not just one of the greatest creators of wealth, but one of the greatest creators of wealth for the 1%. So the inequality problem isn't just generic and general and worldwide. It's very much a problem in which we lead the way. Do you have any stories from your from your book that really illustrate the negative side effects of tech expansion in the Bay Area? Well, I do. I go in great length about the housing crisis. And uh, what's happened is massive evictions, uh, tens of thousands of evictions in San Francisco and Oakland, around the Bay Area, the West Bay, has been the most impacted because that's where tech is focused. Um, and, of course, massive displacement, literally hundreds of thousands of people who are displaced because they can't pay the rents anymore. Meanwhile, of course, as rents go up, it triggers this huge both building boom in the centers. And so we have this uh, massive growth of not just high office buildings, but tall apartment buildings, condos, and so on, all around the Bay Area. Meanwhile, the Bay Area has exploded outward so our little nine-county Bay Area is now the 12-county Bay Area, according to the census. People are commuting in from Stockton and the Central Valley. The Bay Area has an inland empire the same way L.A. has an inland empire. And we in the Bay Area generally don't know that, don't realize it. So you have the longest commutes in the country and the result of both the growth of activity in general uh, people getting to work, cross-commuting, and long-distance commuting is that, of course, our traffic is an absolute uh, catastrophe, um, with it, which is driving everyone crazy as well as the high rents. 
Uh, lastly, let me get you to look into your crystal ball, as it were. What do you think the next decade will bring when it comes to continued tech growth and how we deal with it in the Bay Area? Well, I do think that people are beginning to wake up to the downside of the tech world in all its varieties, whether it's the impact of Airbnb on housing, the impact of Uber and Lyft and gig uh, platforms on employment, or even platforms used for scheduling work, which in the retail sector, which is very disruptive to people's lives, and so on and so on. The homeless problem is obviously a huge festering sore uh, on the body politic. And California, because we are the world center of tech, I hate to say it, because we think we're very progressive, and I like to think of myself or Berkeley as progressive, but we've really sat on our hands here, and we've let the tech companies get away with almost everything because we wanted to nurture them because they have the power and the money here. But California, the Bay Area jurisdictions, have really been supine before the power of the tech companies, as has the U.S. government, I might add. If you look around the world, some of the most uh, important developments in regulating tech, controlling what can go on, uh, uh, penalizing them for monopoly profits and so on, is happening in Europe, which we generally frown upon as being very behind in, in tech. Well, but they're ahead in social considerations uh, that the U.S. really could learn from. KCBS reporter Matt Bigler speaking with UC Berkeley professor Richard Walker. This is KCBS In-Depth, a weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life here in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're reflecting upon some of the top news stories of the past decade. Our final story brings us to 2017 and the deadly and devastating Wine Country fires. This is my neighborhood in flames, completely in flames. Come on, oh, she's disabled. All right, all right, let me get her feet, let me get her feet. From here, I can feel the heat, I can hear them. We gotta get out of here, folks. Now, while California is no stranger to wildfires, the devastation of 2017 drove the point home that there's a new normal when it comes to fire season. And this new reality poses some deadly threats. To reflect on these changes, we're going to bring onto the program now our own Margie Schaefer, who covered the fires for us. Uh, Margie, you know, we're already a couple of fire seasons away from 2017, and it can be pretty easy for this all to start blurring together. But bring us back there. Remind our listeners who weren't there in particular, these were some major fire disasters. Absolutely, Keith. It was actually a series of 250 wildfires that started burning across the state of California in October of 2017. Uh, one of the deadliest was the Tubbs Fire uh, that was in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, that broke out on October 8th near Tubbs Lane in Calistoga. And by the time it was over, 22 people were dead more than 5,600 structures were destroyed and more than 300 other structures were injured. Uh, that was the largest, um, well, actually, it wasn't the largest 
by acreage. The largest by acreage was the Nuns Fire that was burning in Napa and Sonoma. Uh, three people died in that fire. And also uh, the Atlas uh, Fire in Napa and Solano. 781 structures were destroyed, um, hundred more than 100 structures damaged, and six people uh, died in the Atlas Fire. It was a horrific horrific October in 2017. It seemed like the northern part of the state was on fire. And even in other counties, um, in Mendocino County, nine people died in fires there. And in Yuba County, uh, four people uh, died in fires there. October 2017, the northern California wildfires. Right. And right after all that, we had the 2018 fire season, which had the campfire, the most devastating wildfire in California state history. So two bad years right after another. But 2017, I think, really was the year that put on the map for a lot of people this notion of the new normal, this notion that we really do need to come to terms with the dangers of this new reality. Absolutely. And uh, specifically, it was a reminder about the weather and the role that the wind uh, can play in starting and making these fires move uh, when combined uh, with low humidity and dry uh, drought conditions that they're just really, really difficult to stop. Um, a PG&E had a large part of their service area under a red flag fire warning Um like 90% of their coverage area. And it just uh, was the beginning to show of the damage that the wind uh, can provide. And it was probably a precursor to these now uh, PSPS, these public safety power shutoffs um, that we now have. Mm. So now that we have the experience from a few really difficult fire seasons under our belt, I guess the question at this point is, what could be done to make sure that we're not dealing with the same situation at the end of the next decade. What could be done to make this new normal a little bit better? Yes, I spoke with Dr. Scott Stevens. He's a professor of fire science and the chair of the Division of Ecosystem Science at UC Berkeley, specializing in wild science, fire ecology, and forest policy management. I started off by asking him to go over the reasons why it is that California's fire season has gotten so much worse. I think it's a combination of where we live, how we live in those areas, and also just the ideas of vegetation and, and management. And I think they're both really important, especially when we talk about forests or woodlands or oak woodlands. We really have an ability to change fire behavior by manipulating fuels, prescribed burning, forest thinning, combinations of burning and thinning. Other places like the the chaparral, which it's also in Northern California, but also Southern California, there you have so much less options from a kind of a fuel standpoint. You're not going to underburn chaparral. You're not going to thin it. But in a lot of places in Northern California, there are types of vegetation that allow us to manipulate it. So we need to do better there. I mean, we really don't do a lot of that in this state. We're starting to really ramp it up with um, $200 million a year in grant funding for the last two years. That's unprecedented in my career. And the other piece is, where do we live? How do we live? You know, there's no doubt we're going to have people living in harm's way, whole communities, unfortunately. So there, I think we just try to do better to get people ready and be able to take actions themselves and not just always wait for something like an evacuation order that tells them you got to leave now. What about doing some things and getting communities better prepared? Like what? Well, I think this is where Australia helps us. I think Australia, like us, has got some big fire issues right now. Sydney, Australia has got all sorts of fires burning around them. 
But one thing in Australia, I, do two, I did two sabbaticals there. They I saw you were a Fulbright scholar. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I sure was. That was fantastic. But, you know, one thing they do is they do a little better job of getting communities kind of ready themselves. They have community fire brigades. And these are ideas where communities volunteer to come together maybe two times a year, talk about the fire season. They also talk about things like, well, my neighbor now is 85 years old, doesn't have a car, so if something happens, I'm going to take responsibility to see them. Someone down the street maybe just had a a brand-new baby and they're not very mobile. So they they make a, a plan that kind of just really of the community itself, what might they do if a fire happens? And then they try to execute that plan if certainly something does happen. And they're remarkably more prepared. I hate to say it, but, you know, a lot of times in California, all of a sudden someone comes out of their house and there's a big fire. Maybe it's the middle of the night. They just got woken up by maybe their neighbor. And all of a sudden they go, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? Oh, my neighbor is um, immobile. Should I go get them? Oh, I don't even have the chance, right? So we've got to get better at preparing our communities to actually deal with fire. How do you think fire will be affected by climate change in California? Well, it'll do a couple things. You know, one thing is going to reduce the predictability. You know, not to say that our climate is predictable. Of course, we know it isn't. We're in a Mediterranean climate. We get big droughts sometimes, big rains. But we know that climate change is going to make kind of the average climate less common. So that just means we're going to probably have more droughts, um, more multiple-year droughts, more periods of wet. And that's just going to impact fire in a lot of ways. You mean these droughts that last for multiple years like we had in the southern and central Sierra for a few years ago are just huge because fuels dry out, trees die because of bark beetles and mortality. So we're going to have kind of this system that already is a dry summer, and we're going to see essentially maybe a little bit more challenge with that because of longer periods of dryness. And then climate changes, we know, is increasing temperature. Just increasing temperature alone will do things like melt snow faster. We know that. Melt snow faster. We have um, more time available for fuels to dry out and actually ignite, so the fire season increases. We've seen that from papers from colleagues. So I think what it does, it just enables kind of fire to burn a little bit more longer in a year and also in some cases probably have the ability to be a little more severe because of things like drying and fuel moisture. But I have to say one other thing, though, is, yes, climate change is impacting fire, but our management of fuels and vegetation, the way we live, is actually a much larger factor. My guess is at least 75% of the issue, at least 75. So, yeah, climate change is impacting fire, but sometimes I think somehow people realize that we can't do things maybe to mitigate our situation by doing better restoration, better uh, fuel management, getting our communities more prepared. So we can do a, a lot in Northern California to get more better prepared for fire. KCBS reporter Margie Schaefer speaking with wildfire expert Scott Stevens. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth as we've reviewed some of the top stories of the past decade. Obviously, there was a lot we couldn't get to, Really, we could just keep going all day. But much like this decade, we are out of time. So for KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi signing off for now. Happy holidays. We'll see you again in the new year.
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.